You know, you can tell a lot about a person's life by just looking at the doors that they walk through, into, and out of day by day. For instance, let me tell you a little bit about the story of my life by telling you about the keys to the doors, the important doors in my life. This is a key to my house. I live in Aurora on Watson Street, but I also love Wheaton. Um, This is a key to my alarm system because I got robbed the first week I moved to Aurora and I don't want to get robbed again. So I can set this alarm, deactivate the alarm. This is the key to my 2013 Chevy Cruze, which provides a remarkably smooth ride for an American vehicle. Um, This is a key to the church, the fob to get in the door. And then, uh, look, they even gave me a key to my office so I can go in and out of the door of my office. You can learn a lot about somebody by the doors in their life. Now, I am very picky about who I give these keys to. Um, Just a quick quiz. How many people here this morning have a key to my house? Those two people back there, because that's my daughter and son-in-law. So they get a key, okay? No offense, but the rest of you don't get a key to my house, okay? Because we're very particular about who we give our keys to. So if I was going to go on a little trip, let's say I'm going to my second home, overlooking the mountains in Monterey, my little 12-bedroom place, which I don't actually own, but let's say I do, And I'm going to be gone for a little while, and I turn to you and I say, hey, I'd like you to take my keys. I'm going to be on a little trip. I'm going to come back in a little while, like August of 2018, okay? And so I want you to watch my place. Now, if I would just hand you my keys, I am giving you something very significant, very special, very valuable to me. Now, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to hold you accountable for how you treated my house and how you treated my car and how you treated the people that go in and out of the doors of my house and my car. But once I give you the keys you're, and I go away, you're in charge. You make the decisions. You have the authority to decide who's going to go in and out of my house. You have the authority to decide how you're going to use my car. Now, in the Gospel reading this morning... Jesus is using this image of doors and being a doorkeeper as one way to look at the Christian life. It's not the only way, but it's one way. And it's a very exciting way to look at the Christian life. And I think if we get a hold of Jesus' image, what he's saying here, it will change the way we approach the Christian life. It will change the way we view our relationship with God. Notice in your gospel reading, if you'll turn there, in the gospel reading in Mark chapter 13, which is towards the end of the gospel of Mark, which is right before Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays before he dies, and then he dies on the cross. There's this long section in Mark chapter 13, and that section ends with a little story that Jesus told, a little parable that sometimes we call it, but it's really just a story that Jesus told. And he said, notice in verse 34, It, he's talking about 
our Christian life, the Christian life we're trying to live, it is like a man going on a journey. And that's Jesus. He's going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, that's us, each with his or her work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, lest he come and suddenly find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all of you, stay awake. Did you catch that? Jesus is saying that the Christian life is about finding your door, being a doorkeeper. Now, what is your door? If Jesus, if we're doorkeepers for Jesus, what is your door? Well, we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. But just for now, just think of your door as the places, the people, the the spheres of influence you have in your life. Not just with your family and friends, but even bigger than that. Where can you make a difference for the glory of God in this world? That's your door. That's where you're a doorkeeper. Now, you notice that being a doorkeeper has privileges. It is a calling. It is a special privilege that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to you. And part of walking as a Christian, part of waking up in your relationship to Christ is not just turning from sin, which is a very important part of our relationship with God, but it's also about waking up to the doorkeeper responsibilities that God has given us. And that's an incredible privilege. You know, the atheist uh, Richard Dawkins, who's a British uh, scientist, atheist, atheistic writer, atheistic evangelist, um, said, wrote recently that the God of the Bible is, and I quote, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. Now, I suppose you could kind of take certain little tidbits of the Bible out of context and maybe come to that conclusion, but... As I look at the grand story of Scripture, the narrative of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, I see a God who's far from being a control freak. As a matter of fact, I see a God who's constantly giving authority away. A God who's constantly saying, oh, here's the keys. Here's the keys. I don't have to do this. I could do this myself, but I want you. I want to invite you, my creatures, my human beings made in my image. I want to invite you into responsibility, the privilege of being my doorkeepers. It's an amazing privilege, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. So that's the privilege of being a doorkeeper. But there's also responsibilities of being a doorkeeper. As the great theologian Peter Parker once said in Spider-Man 1, the original and far superior version, he said at the end of that, movie, whatever life holds in store for me, I will never forget these words. The words, of course, of his beloved Uncle Ben. With great power comes great... You all know it. Very good. So what are the responsibilities of being a doorkeeper? Well, the job description of a doorkeeper is pretty simple. Two things. Watch for Jesus and care for people. That's what doorkeepers do. Watch for the master of the house. That's what Jesus said in verse 35. He referred to himself as the master of the house. And something in the first service said, every time I said master of the house, he couldn't stop thinking of Les Mis. So don't think of Les Mis. Think of Jesus, okay, as the master of the house. Let's just say lord of the house, okay? He's the lord of the house. And we watch for him. 
And secondly, because he is the Lord of the house, we have a responsibility, as he told us, to watch or to care for people. So let's look at the first part of that job description. What does it mean to watch for Jesus? Notice how many times in this passage Jesus told us uh, basically to stay awake, be on your guard, don't fall asleep. That's what doorkeepers do. Your job is to stay awake and to watch. So notice in verse 33, Jesus said, be on your guard, keep awake. In verse 35, he says, therefore, stay awake. And then in verse 37, in case we didn't get it, the first two times he says, and what I say to you, I say to all. And now he's not just talking to his disciples 2,000 years ago. He's talking to all of us. He says, stay awake. So what are we supposed to stay awake for? What are we looking for? Who are we staying awake for? Well, the short answer is, we're staying awake for Jesus himself. We're watching for Jesus. You know, as you read through this passage, Jesus says some remarkable things about himself, who he is, what he promises to do. Let me, let me just look at a couple of these. Look at verses 24 to 26. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he, this Son of Man figure, will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, who is this Son of Man dude that's going to make stars fall out of the sky and darken the moon and send out angels and gather people up? Who is the Son of Man? Well, the Son of Man was a name, a code name, for somebody that everybody in Jesus' time would have heard about and known about. It was somebody from the Old Testament that was promised in the Old Testament, a a person, a leader, a figure of incredible power and might and glory. And so Jesus is basically, what he's saying here is, remember that guy from the Old Testament, that son of man guy? The guy that's going to come with power and glory, the guy that's going to make stars fall out of the heavens, and the guy that's going to make all kinds of crazy stuff happen, and you can't possibly miss him? I'm that guy. This isn't the first time where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It was actually one of his favorite titles throughout the gospel. The Son of Man. Now, it's a pretty remarkable statement. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. You know, Christmas, the first time Jesus came, really quiet, really hidden. Not very obvious who he was. It's all happening off in some corner in Bethlehem and Nazareth. And nobody really knows what's going on. It's not getting a lot of press. Jesus is saying, there's going to be a time when I come again, you can't possibly miss it. It will be obvious. You will know. Jesus isn't talking about these literal heavenly signs, but he's just saying, you cannot possibly miss my second coming. That's who Jesus is, the Son of Man. But also notice verse 31. Jesus says another pretty astounding thing about himself. And our role as doorkeepers to watch for him. Verse 31, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I want us to just get this for a second, what Jesus is saying here. I mean, if I stood up here today and I said, I know you listen to a lot of people. I know you hear a lot of words every day. I know you probably hear words from, if you're married, you hear words from your spouse. 
Uh, you know, if you're in a relationship, you hear words from your girlfriend or boyfriend, you hear words from famous athletes, you hear words from uh, powerful people and powerful politicians, you hear words from your Facebook friends. But if I stood up and said, all of those words, they're going to pass away. But my words will not pass away. Now, what would you think? Wow, what a jerk. What an egomaniac. Where does he get the right to think that his words are going to last forever? But that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, above all the words that you hear, above all the relationships that you have in your life, above all the people that you pay attention to, put me first. Put my words first. Because my words will not pass away. Now, either Jesus is an egomaniac, or he's a fraud, or he's a psycho for saying things like that. Because you just don't go around saying every other person's words will pass away. All the great religious leaders and philosophers and thinkers and intellectuals and athletes and celebrities, but my words will last forever. Nobody says that unless Jesus really is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, then my first job as a Christian, my first job as a human being is to pay utmost attention to his words and to come to Jesus Christ without conditions, without stipulations, without my terms. It's a little bit like this. Let's say you have an incurable disease and a friend takes you to a doctor, a cutting-edge researcher who's got this new drug and you meet with the doctor and the doctor says, well, I got some good news and some bad news for you. Okay, what's the good news? Good news is I have a remedy for you. It will work and I can save your life and you will live a fruitful life. Say, wow, that's great. What's the bad news? The bad news is while you're taking this remedy and for the rest of your life, you can't eat chocolate. And you say, oh, really? No chocolate? Are you kidding me? I love chocolate. I'm addicted to chocolate. I can't live without chocolate. And so you tell the doctor, you say, okay, look, doc, here's the way it's going to be. I'm going to take your remedy. I'll follow the plan. But I'm going to keep eating chocolate. Okay? That's just the way it's going to be. Now, as crazy as that is, that is infinitely more crazy to come to Jesus Christ, Son of Man, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we tell him, okay, Jesus, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to believe in you, but I'm not going to give up this. I'm not going to give up that. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing that. And are we good, Jesus? We don't do that. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. We come to him on his terms, in his way. If Christ is really who he says he is, if he can really give us what he promises to give us, which is a fruitful life in this life, not necessarily an easy life, not a perfect life, not a trouble-free life, not a suffering-free life, but a beautiful life, a fruitful life, a life that when we get to the end, God smiles and is pleased, and a life that goes on forever. 
experiencing God's presence, growing in Christ for all eternity, if he can give us that, then our only response, the only right response is, okay, Lord, whatever you say, whatever you say, I don't have, I won't bring the conditions. I'll go by your conditions. See, Jesus is not a supplement that we add into our lives. We don't get a little dose of Jesus. We come on his terms and we say, Lord, you are the Lord of the house. So I come to you and this is my only prayer. I'm scared. I don't know where it's going to lead. I don't know how to change all the things in my life. I can't change all the things in my life. I can't get my life together. I can't get it right. But I bring all of that and I give it to you. And I ask you to start this complete reordering of my life. That's the first job of a doorkeeper. We watch for Jesus. We come to him on his terms. We put his words above every other, the millions and millions of words that we could possibly listen to and heed and obey and live our lives by. That's what it means to wake up to our role as a doorkeeper. The second thing is we start to care for others the way the Lord of the house wants us to care for others. We don't care for others because they're in our social circle. We don't care for others because we like them and their personality is pleasant. We don't care for others because they share our mostly white, middle-class assumptions about life. We don't care for people because it's a nice thing to do and it makes us nice people and people look at us and say, oh, what a nice person that is. We care for people because the Lord of the house told us to care for people and I'm a doorkeeper and so I'm going to do what the Lord of the house told me to do. That is why we care for people. So, as a doorkeeper... You have amazing responsibilities. In Jesus' time, the doorkeeper had amazing responsibilities. The doorkeeper could let people in. The doorkeeper could let people out. The doorkeeper could shut people out. The doorkeeper could feed people behind the door. The doorkeeper could ignore people and let them starve and not feed them. The doorkeeper had an amazing responsibility. So if Jesus calls you to be a doorkeeper, what is your door? Who is your door? Is probably the better question. What is your sphere of influence where you can influence, where you can make a difference? And who are the people that you can serve? Of course, if you're married, you think of your marriage. You think of your friends. You think of your family. But most of us just stop there. So we have a very narrow little door. And it's not really the door that Jesus wants us to have. Jesus was constantly pushing people out. And he was saying things like, if you love those who love you, if you are good to those who are good to you, what what good is that? Criminals do that. Thieves do that. If you have a party and you invite just your friends, the people that you like, the people that are in your tight little circle, Jesus said, what good is that? That's not what a Christian does. That's not what my followers do. Jesus is expanding our sphere of influence, making our door a little bit bigger than we ever imagined. This morning, 
I want you to think about the people that you often don't see, the people you often pass by, the invisible people, the quiet people, the people that don't demand your attention, the people that don't immediately go, oh man, that person's just like me. I want to be with that person. I want you to think of some other people. I want you to think about what your door is in your life. I want us to think about as a church, what is our door as a church? I have a friend who's a great example of what it means to be a doorkeeper. He's a refugee who came here from this country, came from an African nation to this country, and a very successful businessman. And I won't mention his name because he's modest, so I won't mention his name. He's a taxi driver in this country. He's a very good taxi driver. So if you need a ride to the airport this December, let me know. I'll connect you with him, okay? Free advertising. So, but all day long, he tells me, since he's come to this country, he notices the people, he loves this country, but he notices how the people in this country are really stressed out, really anxious, really don't have a lot of rest and peace in their hearts and in their homes. And he, and he notices this and he takes this very seriously in his role as a taxi driver. He's a doorkeeper. So he tells me as he drives around, he's praying for people. So he drives by a church, and he prays for the spiritual leaders of that church, and he prays for the people in that church. And he drives by a school, and he prays for the teacher in that school, and he prays for the people in that school. And sometimes he'll drive by homes and just pray for the peace in that home, pray for the peace of that marriage if there's married people in there, pray for the peace of the children if there's children in there. Now here's a guy who understands what it means to be a doorkeeper, that it's more than just me and my family and my little circle of friends. I love that. This Advent, as a church family, we're going to do something very specific to be doorkeepers. And I, I think it's a really cool opportunity that we have. It's going to be a really specific thing. What we're going to do is we're partnering with World Relief, which is a local organization, Christian organization, that resettles refugees. And I don't know if you know this, but the city of Wheaton resettles more refugees than any other city in the state of Illinois except for Chicago. And right now, they're coming, most of them are coming from three countries. Burma, Iraq, and Bhutan. But they're also coming from a lot of other countries as well. And we have a wonderful opportunity. Here's our goal for this Advent season. A way that you can give practically to this doorkeeper opportunity. What we're doing is we're putting together three good neighbor kits. And a good neighbor kit is basically everything a newly arriving refugee family needs to set up their apartment when they first get here, except for the big furniture. Everything else. We have a registry. We have a list. So think like, wow, this is like a wedding shower. This is like a baby shower. And I'm going to give these people everything they need. We want to do that for three families. It's a lot of stuff, but I think we can do it. I think it's doable. You can check out the website. You can check out this bulletin insert, which I'll say more about in just a few minutes. You can also go back there today and you can buy something today. We're also trying to form one good neighbor team. One good neighbor team. A good neighbor team is about six people that walk beside a refugee family for the first six months to a year while they're here. We'd like to form one team. So we have an opportunity as a church family to be doorkeepers. Now, let me just conclude by saying this. Because this is a really important part of this message as well. At this point, you might be thinking, okay, good message. 
or bad message. I don't really care. But anyway, you might be thinking, wow, I get the message. I'm supposed to be a doorkeeper. So I got to get my act together a little bit because I'm not a very good doorkeeper. I'm not a very spiritual person. I'm not a very good Christian. But I really got to try a lot harder. And I got to be that better doorkeeper. And I got to be that better Christian. Or I got to be that better person. Or I got to become a more spiritual person. And it's up to me, and I got to try harder. And if that's the message you get from this sermon, my sermon has completely bombed. Because that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is this. That we need Christ. And we need his forgiveness. And we need his grace. And we can't get our act together because Jesus has done that for us when he died on the cross. He paid the debt that we could not pay. You know, after Mark chapter 13, if you keep reading your Bible, you read Mark chapter 14, remember Jesus kept telling them, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And the disciples said, oh yeah, Lord, we do it. We'll, we'll do it. We got it. We got it. We got it. We, we can handle this. We'll get our act together. We'll be really good. We'll pull it off for you, Jesus. And what happened in chapter 14, right before Jesus died? All the disciples, in one way or another, all of them fell flat on their face. All of them were failures when it came to living perfectly for Christ, for staying perfectly at their post as doorkeepers. All of them fell asleep. You know, the disciples and us sometimes have this kind of spiritual, I can get my act together. This spiritual overconfidence. The comedian Jerry Seinfeld called it male idiot superhero thinking. Okay? And I don't want to be sexist today, so let's just call it human being idiot superhero thinking. And he said it's like the guy with a mattress on his roof driving 65 miles down the freeway and he's using his arm to hold onto the mattress. And he says to people, don't worry, I got it, I got it. I'm using my arm. Sometimes that's our approach to the spiritual life. Don't worry, I got it, I got it. I'm using my arm. Meanwhile, stuff is going to go flying off all over the place in your spiritual life. The first thing we need to do, and we do it every Sunday as we celebrate the Eucharist. As we come to the Eucharist, we come with open hands, and we come with our need, and we come to meet Christ, and we come to receive his gift, because we can't do this by ourselves and in our own strength. We don't got it. We need his help. Maybe you've been living a long way from Christ, a far way, you've been far away from Christ. And maybe your prayer this morning, or maybe sometime this Advent, your prayer is going to be something like this. And let me just say, I mean, this is a model prayer. You can pray this. You don't have to just, I'm not the only one that can pray this. You can pray this in the quietness of your own heart. You can say something like, Lord, Jesus, I have been living like the Lord of the house. Like I'm the Lord of the house, not you. I want to switch roles. I want you to be the Lord of my house. I want to repent. I want to turn away from being the Lord of the house. And I want to enthrone you as the Lord of my house. And I want to begin, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know the first steps to take. But it's just, 
Lord Jesus, I just want you to take me as I am with all my faults and all my struggles and all my spiritual inadequacies, and I want you to take me as I am, and I want you to start reordering my life. And I'm going to come to you without conditions. I'm not going to say, well, I'll follow you, but I'm going to do this and this, and I'm not going to do that and that. I just come to you, Lord, without conditions. You pray that, any words that you have to say the basic spirit of that, and I I promise you Christ is going to listen to that prayer. He's going to honor that prayer. And he's going to begin to work in your life. So, this morning as we begin Advent, what's your door? What are the literal doors of your life? Because that will tell you something about the doors. But what are the figurative doors of your life? What are the doors that you go in and out of? How are you a doorkeeper? Where is the Lord calling you to be a keeper of the door? Amen.